But don't read it. I don't want you to get distracted. Um, I'll, I'll talk more about that in just uh, in just a minute. The title of my message this morning is, Does He Love Me? is not the question. Does He Love Me? is not the question. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we move through this. Um, just for... A couple of minutes here. Let me kind of review what we talked about last week as we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. Since last week, the vanity has deepened and broadened. Um, we now have dueling investigations. You know, someone play the banjo. Um, and we have a we have all of the news coming out now about this crypto crash fallout. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you've read any of that. I've flabbergasted that. And they loaned a guy a billion dollars. <laughs> Let me say that again. Billion. With a B. Uh, at any rate, so all, of, all that's going on. And uh, there's other things. I'm not going to go into all that. I, I just, just want to remind you that Jesus has chosen us for these times. Our perspective has to be the long view of that of God, that, that um, these momentary and light difficulties are going to be far outweighed by the weight of glory. Um, I, I can't help but think, and sometimes I think back to this, that what was Tolkien trying to say to us when we had that little dialogue with Gandalf and Frodo, as they were trying to get in to the, I'm not going to remember this correctly, guys. Some of you more Tolkieny people are going to remember this better than me. Where Frodo says something, I wish these times had never come. Let me regain my composure here. And Gandalf says to him, now this is after he tells him that um, Gollum's life is not without significance. He's got perspective here, folks. And then, and then he says something to the effect, well, so do all who deal with such times. How many know what I'm talking about? Tolkien was a survivor of World War I. So once again, give a little perspective. <clears throat> I remember reading about World War I and that um, the terrible, um, the, 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 the terrible conditions of trench warfare. Did you know that there were soldiers who died in the mud because they could not be extracted? The continual bombardment had so 
shelling had so destroyed the earth that water just soaked it and soldiers got into that and couldn't be extracted. They died slowly in the mud. So when I, when I look at what Gandalf says to Frodo, I don't see Gandalf saying it to Frodo. I see Tolkien saying it to us. And uh, I don't think it's possible. Did you know that there was actually an official document set out among the British troops? So their NCOs <clears throat> would know how to speak calmingly to that person stuck in, the, stuck in the mud while someone came behind them and put a bullet in the back of their head. Because that was better than letting them die in the mud. And please remember the verse in Ecclesiastes where um, the preacher, Solomon perhaps, the preacher says, don't ask uh, why are things worse today than they were yesterday. Remember this? Because that's the wrong that's the wrong question. Again, I, I don't want to take I, I don't want to take a lot of time to do this, but that was that was the question. It's in chapter seven, verse ten. Say not, why are the former days better than these? For that is not from wisdom, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It's the wrong question. The old days were not better. They're only better to us because we didn't live in them. And Lord willing, one of these days people are going to look back on where we live and say, Man, they had it easy. Perhaps. So, um, we've just got to keep all this stuff in the perspective. And once again, I will remind you, if you haven't yet, look it up on the internet. Read um, Roosevelt's speech about the man in the arena. Um, We are the brotherhood of the arena. And those people who are untried, who lived a life untried, will never know the elation of the struggle. And that's basically what Roosevelt's trying to tell us. So, all of that from last week. Um, <laughs> golly, I could have said it and we'd have got done. That was pretty quick. I, we could have got done a lot earlier. All right. So, <clears throat> this today we're going to look at the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, or the book of Canticles. And again, I'm trying to condense some stuff here because we're going to have Christmas sermons coming up and the 1st of December I'm going to preach to you about communion. We're going to talk about communion, make sure everybody understands what we're doing with all that. So i got to tell you folks, um, um, I've, I've made it a point the past couple of years to dig into this, dig into scripture. I mean, I've read this gazillions of times and uh, I said, Lord, I want to know more about this than I've ever known before. So I, I started digging into this and the more I dug, the muddier I got. Go back to that. Uh, I, I uh, um, <laughs> you know, at some point when you're in a rut, you've got to quit digging because what? The rut just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So um, I asked myself, what, what's going on with this? 
what is this all about? So I looked, I read books. You know, I went to the experts. <laughs> okay? So, um, uh, I, I'm trying to... I'm trying to find this here that I that I want to read to you. I'm not even really sure that I can find a specific passage. Uh, um, <clears throat> First it says, Song of Solomon is grammatically ambiguous. And it, it talks about uh, who wrote it. Uh, let me see. The Song of Solomon or Song of Songs or Canticles, which means song, contains beautiful and sensuous poetry expressing romantic love between a young man and a shepherd. And a young woman, shepherdess, in ancient Israel. On this point, there is general agreement, but agreement ends once the discussion moves to how the Song of Solomon works to convey its theme. The Song of Solomon has, in fact, been subject to a broader range of interpretations probably than any other book in the Bible. Thus, the Song of Solomon was first understood by early Jewish interpreters as an allegory of God's love for Israel, and then through many centuries of Christian interpretation as primarily an allegory of Christ's love for the church or as Christ's love for the soul. In contrast to this, most Christian interpreters since the 19th century have understood the Song of Solomon as a beautifully crafted love poem describing either the relationship between King Solomon and his Shulamite bride, or the relationship between a simple shepherd and the Shulamite shepherdess. Now, stop right there, because first he says, or they, the editors of this say, first of all, it used to be kind of an allegory of God's love for us. But now we look at it as this love story between this person and this person, or between this person and this person. Are you following this? So... They don't even know if it's a shepherd or Solomon who's the bridegroom here. Let me continue reading. Um, A three-character relationship involving Solomon, a shepherd boy, and the Shulamite shepherdess. Uh, Still many others since the beginning of the 20th century have understood the Song of Solomon as simply a collection of sensuous love poems on a common theme rather than the unfolding single poetic love story. So some have seen it as uh, it starts here and it moves to a narrative which is basically a wedding at the end. Although when I read this, I find it hard to figure out where the wedding was, whether it was in the end or three-quarters of the way through or in the middle or maybe at the beginning. Um, Some have said this is a play with a chorus. So if, if... uh, hopefully you have this open to your to your Bible. My my Bible breaks it up. Uh, at least this one does. It's got and and this one does too. It says she and then others and then she and then he and then others and then she goes back and forth as their dialogue goes back and forth. So it, it's very possible that these others were like a chorus. So picture this Italian opera. <laughs> okay. This picture, this opera, with she singing her love to him, and he singing her love, he he singing his love back to her, and off to the side is a chorus, going do wa di 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 di. All right, whatever the chorus does. Now I'm I'm not meaning to make fun of this, but at all. As a matter of fact, I broke my heart when I read it 
But um, I do want you to see there are difficulties here. I want to read to you on this little from this other this other Bible. A moving story, drama, and poem. The Song of Songs features a love dialogue between a young Israelite woman, the woman of Shulam, and her lover, Solomon the king. They describe in intimate detail their feelings for each other and their longings to be together. Throughout the dialogue, sex and marriage are put in their proper God-given perspective. Okay, I, I have... It's hard to find that, okay? But I'll take their word for it. Much debate has raised over the meaning of this song. Some say it is an allegory of God's love for Israel or for the church. Others say it is a literal story about married love. In reality, it's both. A historical story with two layers of meaning. On one level, we learn about love, marriage, and sex. On the other, we see God's overwhelming love for his people. As you read the Song of Songs, remember that you are loved by God and commit yourself to seeing life, sex, and marriage from His point of view. I think that last paragraph is probably the best thing I read out of all this stuff. It's, it's both. And uh, again, was it, was it a narrative from beginning to end? Uh, was it a collection of poems that somebody put together later and uh, into this thing that describes love? You know... Um, one of my favorite songs of all time is Mornin' by Al Jarreau. If you don't know that song, I suggest you go listen to it. It's about a guy who falls in love. It's a beautifully written song. He gets up in the morning and he's so happy because he's in love. And as a matter of fact, he reaches such heights of ecstasy in this song that... The, the high point of this song that only Al Jarreau can do is he reaches out and he touches the face of God. I love that song. I want that song played at my funeral. Because, folks, we, we've, we've lost the passion of life. We, in so many ways, have lost the love of life and a love for one another. We have... We have uh, I'm going to get off target here if I'm not careful. We have taken, because of this sinful, wicked world, we have taken love between men and women and made it something only for recreational purposes and, and, and stripped it of all of its higher godly qualities that God put in it. On the other hand, we get, into, we get into some Christian circles and we've made this thing a sterile deal. You get married so you can have kids. Because you've got to have kids to share the gospel with so the gospel can be propagated. You say, well, you're exaggerating. I am slightly, but not too much. There are people who, who teach you that. And, and, and it is, it is a, 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 a sterile academic connection. That's not true. And when you read this, you see that... Uh, <laughs> by the way, this is kind of funny to read because we're out of touch with some of this stuff, you know. Um, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. There's some pickup lines here, huh, guys? Your eyes are doves. You know, that's... Not sure how that will work. 
Um, <laughs> I was trying to find things that she said. He, he, uh, she says, this is the second verse. Let me kiss, let me kiss, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name, listen to that, your, na- your name is oil poured out. So there's, uh, here's another one. He, I think this one's actually pretty good. He says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 2, As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. I don't know if that was praising her or being negative about all of her friends. <laughs> You're not like those other thorns, you know, I, so... But there's all this there's all this flowery language and some of it folks is euphemistic and uh, I was in here as we were getting ready to pray and coming out and I was scratching my head and trying to figure out and I said you you know there, there were times in ancient in ancient in years past when you weren't allowed to read this book until you were married that ought to get everybody interested all right so All right. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It's a good place to begin. At the beginning. And we know the story. So it says in verse 23... And the rib that God, excuse me, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then apparently it's the narrative continues. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. I, I remember one, uh, back when I was in Bible school, one Bible translator said, or a commentator said, the best way to paraphrase that is Eureka. Okay? This is it. And I remember writing that in my Bible. When, when Adam saw Eve, he said, this is it. Because if you remember the pre, if you read this in context, you remember the previous thing, he went through, he named all the animals. And it says that after doing that, God said there was not one suitable helpmeet for him. He didn't like the hippopotamus. He didn't like the giraffe. Okay? The monkey didn't smell good. All right? He, he didn't like any of those. And so God said, I'm going to make someone, I'm going to make him from you. And he said, this is bone of my bone. This, this is it. How many are with me so far? Flip over. In my Bible, it's just... One page. I don't know how long a time. I don't know that we're given that information, but it's one, it's just one page. Verse eleven. God, this is God speaking. He says, "Who told you that we're naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat?" Verse twelve. The man said, "The woman whom you gave to be with me." She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. One page, folks. 
from one page, it goes from greatest thing ever to it's her fault. And actually, by implication, it's not the greatest thing ever to her fault. It's her fault, but you gave her to me. In other words, I liked her before, but I don't like... You know what the difference was? Sin. Sin. Now, let's go back to the book of Song of Solomon, and we'll talk more about this here in a little bit. Uh, I intend to give you this if it kills all of us. I got a bunch of us here, okay? Holidays are coming up, folks. We're going to have a one-hour Christmas time. So I'm, I'm going to extract those a few minutes at a time between now and Christmas. At least that's my logic. I don't know how good it is. You think back with me to when you first fell in love. I remember I had a friend when I was in high school who they actually, the neighbors called the police on. Because the dude, <laughs> the dude was afraid to go to his, the girl's house. So he just drove around the block hoping she'd come out. He didn't, she, he didn't tell her he was driving around. She didn't have any, I mean, it was just, I'm just going to drive by there and hope she happens to, you know, let the dog out or get the mail or. And he just drove around, he drove around, he drove around. Finally, the neighbors said, there's something weird going on. They called the police on this guy. And what was he doing, man? He was in love. Well, at least he thought he was. Say, was that a stupid thing to do? It's love, man. You do stupid stuff when you're in love. You forget about yourself, or you get so wrapped up in yourself, and you get so wrapped up in this other person. When you read this book, and, and I, I, I don't know if you've started it or not, but when you read this book, ask yourself, about who does this Shunammite girl talk? She talks about him. Ask yourself, about whom does the groom talk? He talks about her. And of course, we know the Bible says that out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks and and oh what terms are used and I, I kind of tried to read some of them I have to be very careful about reading this stuff I tried to try, read some of them but man oh what terms are used these, these, these people are enthralled with the other every every facet of their being is praised and their words reflect their thoughts and you know their thoughts must be greater in number and deeper in substance and probably some too private to share. So when you're reading this, you're, you're seeing this effusive language that comes out of them because there's something deeper going on in their heart because they're what? They're in love. Do you know that God loves you? Um, 
We're going to look at just a few of these things. Some of them I'm going to read. I'm going to read this one because it's too long, but some of them I'm just going to quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Probably familiar with it because it's, you know, it's at every wedding. Love is patient. Love is not at every wedding. If you didn't have this at your wedding, you're still married, okay? So the, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrong, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And just like the Apostle Paul, he uses the word all, all the time. (laughs) And I read this and I get convicted because I I say I love people and I, I, you know, uh, that means I can't be irritable. Well, that doesn't work. And so I get convicted when I read this, and I have to stop and think. See, if God loves me, then doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 describe God's love for me? We usually think it about this is how we're supposed to love one another. That's why we do it in weddings, you know. This is what you're supposed to, this is how you're supposed to treat one another, and that's true. But doesn't it also mean that this is how God looks at me? That God's not irritable with me when I do asinine things? That He's patient with me? Look at this. It does not resist, insist on its own way. Do you realize that God is omnipotent? Do you guys ever see that movie years from years ago, uh, Bruce Almighty? You remember that movie? Where he makes, isn't that the movie where he makes the newscaster talk? Gibberish. Could God do that? Of course He could. I mean, would He? Well, I think sometimes He does to some people, but that's not what we're talking about here today. God doesn't force His way upon us. He is omnipotent. And yet he's through his Holy Spirit he's constantly instructing us and encouraging us and cajoling us and explaining to us. He gives us this whole book about his son Jesus and then all the application of what Jesus was doing that that the that the apostles wrote that we have in the epistles. He even gives us a glimpse into the end. Man, we read that today about that that dragon and that woman in Revelation chapter 12. We we, we even get a glimpse into the end. Because He loves us, He shows us these things. So I I, I read this, I I, I looked at this and I thought, man, that's that's how God loves me. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 said, God showed His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. 
God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before He loves us. John chapter 15, verse 13 says this, Greater love has no man than this, what? Then he lay down his life. So Jesus is laying out, the, laying out the standards. You know, he did that in a couple places. Remember, they brought that woman to him who was supposedly caught in the midst of adultery. And he looked at them and he said, Let that one who is among you was without sin cast the first stone. So Jesus laid out the standards about how that's to be done. He lays out, he lays out the standard here. The greatest, greatest, no man has greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. For his friends. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'm going to look that one up. John chapter 13, verse 1, where Jesus, this is the chapter where Jesus takes off his garment and wraps himself with a towel and begins to serve his um, disciples by washing their feet. And in the part of that uh, uh, kind of preamble to that narrative, it says, and he loved them to the end. Now, I, I want to go to. Uh, I'll go back to John 15 here for a minute. I'm going to read two or three things. I got so excited, I went clear to the Old Testament. So we're just going. <laughs> it's part of it's part of my notes here. This is my commandment. What? That you love one another as I have loved you. That's in verse 12. We read verse 13. That's in verse 12. So here's, get some contextual reality here. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Listen to this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now there's a whole bunch of points there, by the way. Friends communicate with one another. One of the differences between um, uh, friends and servants is that servants do what they're told, and friends are given the facts, and then they make the choice of whether or not they're going to do it. And Jesus said, I've loved you, and I've called you my friends. Remember? That the, this love that we read about in First Corinthians 13 doesn't compel people, it doesn't make people. We, we uh, and I, I've got to be careful here that I, I've already gone a long time here that I don't get too sidetracked, but... The stoic, uncommunicative Christian, to one degree or another, is an oxymoron. If you're not communicating with those who love you about your love for them, and about your life, and about what's going on in your life from the Father... There's a problem. They are not your servants. They can't figure out what you're going to do by reading your mind.
John 14, 15. And we kind of already touched on this. Let me read this one. I'm kind of going back and forth here because there's two sides to this. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Folks, uh, there, there is no, <laughs> there's no gray area in that, is there? What, what did we just read that his commandment was? That we love one another. So, you know, it, it's like, it, it's like this equation that one plus two equals three, and two plus one equals three. It's, you get the same place. When you read this, you get the same place. God loves us and sent His Son, and His Son loved us and commanded us to love one another, and if we love Him, we will. And if we don't, it's because we don't love Him. And I want to get back to the theme of Solomon, Solomon here. There is love and passion exuding off of every one of these pages. These people are talking about one another. They're thinking about one another. They're desiring to be with one another. There goes, she goes searching for him. She, I gotta find him. I gotta, I gotta be where, I've got to be where he is. And you can read John 14 and find out that that's what the Lord says to the disciples. I'm gonna take you where I am. Cause he wanted to be with them. We, we, we have these extremes out here. We've got this uh, experiential wing of Christianity that says you're going to experience all this stuff. And if you don't experience there's something wrong, you've got this other wing over here that says it's all scholastic and, and academic and, you know, you just check all the boxes down through and we'll baptize you and you're in. And somewhere in the middle it's got to be that we understand what God's done for us and we fall in love with Him because of it. I cannot stand this passionate, passionless. People say, you get all worked up when you preach. How can I not? How can you not? We read over these scriptures so often that they, they, just, they go through and we don't even stop to think about them. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We read that and we go, yeah, that's true. That's the theological point here. Let me, di- you know, here's the Greek verb and here it is. And it goes like this. And, and we get it all and we diagram it all out and we get it all figured out. And we miss the cotton picking point that he loves us. Huh. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and and 16, um, Ephesians chapter 4 is that passage where it says, He gave some apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And it goes down through, and it says in that that we're to grow up in love and that we're to speak the truth in love as we do it. And again, there's so many ramifications of this. We, we, we've got... We've got people who think it's their, their job to fix other people and so they'll go with an accusatory tone and that's not what the Bible tells us to do or a, or a better than you are tone. When we, when we find someone who's struggling, we're supposed to go with them in humility because Scripture says that we could be in the very same place. Oh, 
All right, I to make sure I don't miss anything important. <laughs> I don't know. I, re- I read, I'm going to take you to a couple more passages here in the New Testament, if you can bear with me for just, um, just a second. Romans chapter 8. And I already quoted part of Romans, but let me read to you again. And think, maybe think about this from this um, background that we've, that we've been talking about, from the passion of the Song of Solomon. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. You're probably familiar with this. I mean, what a wonderful chapter Romans 8 is. Anyway, some people say it's, 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 it's the epitome of, 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 of uh, the explanation of grace. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Folks, do you understand that? He's already, God has already given the greatest thing he could ever give. His son. Who can bring any charge? Can, you know, if someone accuses you, you know, of something, and we get into Peter. Peter, Peter talks about suffering, and he says, "Look, if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good. Don't suffer for doing wrong. You get punished for doing wrong, you deserve what you get." Okay, so that's kind of what Peter paraphrasing him a little bit. But if you're going, if you suffer for doing good, then happy you should be. Who is going to condemn? What shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God's already said you're justified. If you're a believer, then, then you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've been justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, we, we come... We condemn ourselves and others. You know, we fail. You know what? We've got someone, and John talks about it in First John, we've got someone making inter- intercession for us. And, and who was it? The guy who paid our bill is saying that bill's paid. When the accuser of the brethren comes, the guy who paid the bill says that bill's paid. I, I, I don't know how to... I, I, I don't know what illustrations or what euphemisms to put into this thing. I just I think that we read over this and we take it for granted. Yeah, that's Christian doctrine. My sins have been washed away. I'm in Jesus Christ. And, and we don't stop to think that God loves us. This is all an expression of His love. We, um, th- this thing keeps getting bigger the more I talk. I'm sorry. So we, um, 
we read this. We read the Psalms where it, where it talks about how wonderful are His thoughts of us. That He He thought about us while we were being formed in the womb and while we were being knit together. What What did we say earlier? When you love somebody, what do you do? You think about them. He goes on, verse thirty-five. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? What do you think? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who, what? Loved us. For I, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, <clears throat> nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How, how, I, I do not know how to explain how deep that is. How broad, what is the breadth of his love? What is the depth of his love? That there is nothing, nothing, nor life, nor death, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. He's talking about spiritual powers. You know, we read these books about all the demons are floating around out here, you know, and, and hiding behind every tree to attack you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's cool. When we eating? Romans, uh, Romans eight. I already read that. Philippians three. <clears throat> Are you guys tired? Okay. You bored? All right. <laughs> Angry. All right. Well, we'll work. We'll work on that one. All right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Philippians three. I, I read. I, I was trying to. Th- I was pondering this, you know, as I was thinking about this and trying to sort my way through this book and and, and think about this. And I thought, you know what? What? And, and I may be wrong about this. This is my opinion. I thought, <clears throat> what is the greatest declaration of devotion to Christ in the New Testament? And when I thought about that, and I mean, it's just my personality, perhaps, this is where it took me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. This is what, this is what popped into my head. I, I pray it was the Holy Spirit and not, uh, you know, some bad chili. Chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, excuse me, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining, what a wonderful word, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I, I stopped to think and I said, here's, here's Paul. Paul wrote Romans 8. So the, the thinking, the, the Holy Spirit used the thinking of Paul to write Romans 8 to us. And the Holy Spirit used the thinking of Paul to write Philippians 3. This was Paul's heart. He says, what, what am I, everything I've got is nothing compared to knowing him and knowing his love. My life is totally lost in the life of the one who loved me. That's what the Song of Solomon is trying to tell us. They're continually focused on the person that they love. It doesn't matter if it's a play, if there's of who you know the 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 groom and the, and the bride. It, it, it doesn't. They they were just lost in one another. All right, let me close. John chapter twenty one. Verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, there are points here about Loving others, feeding the sheep, tending the sheep, and what that has, what that may have to do with ministry into our lives, one to another. <clears throat> There's points here about selfless service. That's why he said, you know, you go where you, you used, when you were young, you used to go where you want to, but there's going to be a time to come. People are going to take you where you don't want to go. But the greatest question there is, the greatest point is, do you? Love me.
I pray that our religious experience doesn't get all crazy and get all into experience so that everything's all about some emotional high and all about us because that's not love. I also pray that it doesn't go to the other extreme and become some academic exercise where we check the boxes, say the right words, recite the right things back. But when we get right down to it, folks, a salvation surrender. Think with, think through this with me. When, when the Lord in His grace brings us to that place where we realize that all our problems are caused by us. And we say to Him, I don't want my life anymore. I want your life. All of that because of His grace. When we say that and He dumps on us His salvation and makes us know how much He loves us and probably that love communication has been happening all along and all that happens and all that washes over us. It changes us. If we don't love Him, I wonder if that's happened. Hey, well, I love Him. You know, it's... But folks... Love is just not an academic exercise. There are things you do when you love that you don't want to do. That's true. There are also times when you love when that hard thing is the best thing in the world. That hard thing becomes the easiest thing because love is there. And, and it certainly is not all passion, but I'm afraid that in some instances this world has pounded on us and driven the passion from our hearts. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will renew and rekindle our love for you. That you will cause us to see how we have been touched by your love. And that in that love is a spark of passion and I pray that you will ignite that spark within our own hearts back to you. Of course, it's not all passion. But it certainly shouldn't be void of it. And Lord, so often, we listen to it in all the songs. Or in many of the songs. It's all about all the things that we're going through and Is your love there? Rise us above that. It's not about... We've got so many evidences from Scripture about how you love us. Do we love you? Fill our hearts, Holy Spirit, with love for the Father and the Son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.